0: I'm going to be starting this morning, um, not actually at the beginning of chapter 6, but a, a little a couple sentences earlier in 5.22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you speak in your name? He has brought trouble upon this people. and You have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land, of, the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God, indeed. Good morning, congregation. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning, morning, Kyle. That was too much. Let's scale back a little bit. Well, last week, David talked about learning to pray with childlike dependency. When children seek comfort, hate things, the arms that are waiting to embrace them.
2: Oh, thing in love, God, almost like run
1: for embrace. Now we're going to continue this theme a little bit today in this passage. Uh, you'll.
2: Takes. Now, as we journey through
1: this simple childlike trust in God, um, maybe it was easier to believe when you were younger. Maybe life's trials have come up recently, and maybe they haven't shaken your faith, or maybe they have. Maybe
2: Hey, right. At times we. we. I was. I was. God. And he says that there are three questions. There are two I was. I was. General,
1: hidden. Now, if you ever felt like God might not be there listening to you when you're talking, you're not the first. In fact, I think
2: that this book and those questions strike a chord because they're part of the journey. Because learning to ask your Father, comes on the heels of
1: a passage we skipped because we're going through and we're just looking at these instances where Moses is, is in dialogue with God but it it skips over chapter 5 which is a passage of profound disappointment for the Israelites and for Moses. I mean, Moses does what God requests and goes to Pharaoh and asks if the Pharaoh would allow the Israelites to worship him in the wilderness Moses expected Pharaoh to say no, because God told him to expect.
2: But what Moses did expect was that Pharaoh would create in a way.
1: Israelites are lazy. They are going to Produce every day, but now they have
2: their responsibility. Now the Israelites because of what Moses
1: did. Maybe Pharaoh is saying he doesn't want the Israelites to get ahead of themselves, the wilderness, and organize and develop to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh was sending a message loud and clear. Look, I don't negotiate. There are no special benefits to life in Egypt. You will either live by the plow or die by the sword. Those are your options. There is no highway for you. Now, as a result, I mean, the Israelites are are discouraged. They're dispirited. I mean, the elders go to Pharaoh um, and Pharaoh says, lazy, that is what you are, lazy. I mean, if this is the way to test Pharaoh's willingness to negotiate the terms of their freedom, I mean, we have to say that it's a catastrophic failure. Moses himself, at the end of chapter 5, and that's why we started there, expresses despair and doubt, right? Let's read that together just before chapter 6. This is how Moses responds. He returns to the Lord and says, Lord why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in his name he's brought trouble
2: upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all. There's despair, there's doubt, even desolation in that.
1: Now, our passage today comes on the heels of that. This is God speaking back to Moses, Spe- speaking back to a man who's questioning and dispirited. This is how our Father in heaven responds to us when we
2: are questioning and dispirited. In the midst of, of Moses' doubt, God
1: does not remain silent. Instead, he responds with reassurance. He reaffirms his promises. He reminds Moses of the covenant he made with his ancestors.
2: He says, I am, says, I've heard, he says, and I will.
1: God says, I am, I've heard, I remember, and
2: I will. Now, in addition to, to breaking these up, I'm going to do a little exercise with us later in the sermon, and then I'm going to close with a few remarks.
1: God tells Moses that he has an unwavering commitment to the people, Hebrews, because he made a covenant with his ancestors.
2: He tells Moses, you
1: are living in your father's story, but your father is not just Abraham. I'm your father. You're living in my story. So trust me. The first way we see God reassure Moses can come under the rubric of the words, I am. Verse 1 verse 10 and verse 13, they appear to begin three distinct communications that God has with Moses. And in each one of these, God uses his
2: personal name. Actually, if you look throughout our passage, I counted nine, but then I added
1: those, those two verses before verse six. So our passage includes 10 instances of the personal name of God. Actually, 11, two instances in verse 22. We see in verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses. In verse 2, we see God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh. In verse 3, we
2: see, but my name is the Lord. In verse 6, we
1: see, I am the Lord. Verse 7, we see, I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, we see, I am the Lord at the end. In verse 10, we see, the Lord said to Moses. In verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, and in verse 13, now the Lord spoke. Now, the significance of this is found in verse 2. Let's read that together. In verse 2, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. The word in Hebrew there is El, the generic word for God that is used of of really any God. It's it's almost as generic as the, the term God is today. But my name, the Lord. By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. right? Yahweh. I did not make myself known as Yahweh. So the nation of Israel, or the the Hebrews, at this point, they're embedded in a polytheistic culture. Um, I mean, who is El? I mean, the Pharaoh himself calls himself a god. And so who is God in that context? I mean, by sharing a name. God sets himself apart. It's the act of revealing himself, reiterating who he is. It's, it's also, for, for Moses, a profound act of intimacy because it recalls, I mean, the burning bush where God first declared who he was. Now, I, in a, a lot of ancient cultures, names carried weight and power, they represented something about the individual. I mean, the thing in this is that there is a living reality to the relationship that. That God, is, um, that God is identifying himself to Moses in this way. That wasn't a real sentence. I, th- I think I lost my sentence somewhere in there. But, but God, God is setting himself apart, making himself known by his personal name, and thereby showing the Israelites, this is who I am. It's, it's, I'm different than the the gods around you. I'm different than Pharaoh himself. Now, in four of these instances, God doesn't just use His name. He says, "I am the Lord." Now, verse six: "I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians." Now, he he goes on to say that uh, in verse eight, "You will know me as the Lord who brought you out of the yoke of the Egyptians." There's there's a there's a, I will be this for you relationship going on there. Now, now Moses hearing this name, I, I think that this is more than just a, a, a personal like reminder that I'm different, right? I, 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 I hinted at this earlier, but, but this is reminiscent of Moses's first encounter with God at the burning bush, where he said, I am who I am. That was a transformative encounter for Moses which is, is important in this moment of discouragement, right? In this moment, God, his repeated assertion, I am the Lord, it reinforces his commitment to the mission to set his people free. And, and
2: there's more than uh, just a title in here. I mean, I think that, that everything that follows
1: what God declared himself as in that moment
2: is included in that. I mean, if I go back, um, we're in chapter 3, where God says in verse 12, I will be with you and this will be the sign. So, so, so he goes on in verse 14 to say, I am who I am. This is what you are to say the Israelites. to, to the Israelites. I am sent you. Now, I think that if God had said this once,
1: that would be a point worth making. If God said this three times, that would be a point worth making. It happens 10 times in our passage, again and again, this repeated assertion, as if saying, remember, 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 remember who I am, remember the history, and trust everything that I've promised. You have the Pharaoh who claims to be a God, who's making threats. You have the people groaning, lamenting, and you have next to it this, this anchor point for Moses, right? In, in the cacophony of all that chaos, you have that anchor point of I am saying, I am with you. I will be with you. I will go with you. I am sending you. I am who I am, and I'm sending you to the Israelites, and I'm making these promises to you. Now, I am is the first way that God reassures Moses in this moment. The second way I see God reassuring Moses is by simply stating, I have heard and remembered, right? There's a past tense action, completed action component of that. So in verse 5, God says, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. In essence, God is saying, I am paying attention, and I haven't forgotten any of my promises. God hears the pain and suffering of his people. God hears you, when you call out to him, he's not far off. He's not ignoring or distant. He's not distant to our struggles. Actually, he's right here. He's right there in the page, turned to the cries and mindful of his people. Uh, he's, he knows what he said to Moses, ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I mean, this is his own words. He, he's not being asked to remember this. He says to Moses in verse four, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. I mean, he knows. He knows that he made promises. God recalls his covenant with Abraham and the the promises to deliver the Israelites from from Egypt and give them the land of Canaan. Moses, seeing this these worsening conditions feels feels a responsibility setting in, right? Using David's metaphor last week, right?
2: He has been invited to take a plastic lawnmower that weighs about a million pounds and push it along, um, clearing out, I
1: mean, what seems like sequoias. Like, like what can you do with a plastic lawnmower? And he feels that weight and he's taking that
2: weight on. And, and I mean, there is something. that is so potentially like like weighty and um,
1: and fear-inducing, right? When you when you take on the call of God to do to do an impossible task that only God can do and put that on your shoulders. I mean he, Moses has to be reassured in this moment that God is in control, that God knows what he's doing. God's made promises and he hasn't forgotten about the Israelites. I mean, maybe Moses felt isolated. Maybe he felt unsure about God's plan. I mean, this this was a reminder to him of God saying, I've got this, I'm in control, which is more than just words. This is assurance that the Israelites weren't suffering in silence. Their hopes for freedom are anchored in God who is, who is, God I am, and the God who has heard and remembered. His unwavering commitment to them. So, so that second way, we see this in the passage, that God reassures Moses is saying, I have heard, I remembered. God says I am, God says I have, God says. a third way that he's gonna reassure Moses is, he says I will. Now, throughout Exodus 6, God makes promises about what he intends to do. So read these with me. Verse 1, Moses, uh, the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Verse 6, there's a lot of them. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with, a mighty, and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be
2: your God. In verse 8, I will bring you to the land I swore. I will give
1: it to you as a possession. When God says these things, when God says, I will bring you out, I will free you, I'll take you as my own people, I mean, these aren't just words. I mean, these are commitments, right? When God says, I will, he's making a promise. It's not just a possibility. God's not saying maybe. I mean, it's a declaration of, of something that's going to happen. In the face of doubt and uncertainty, these words are a firm foundation for hope. I mean, Moses, hearing God say, I will, I mean, as a source of strength, it's a
2: daunting, impossible task that is on his shoulders. I mean, but the assurance that comes from I am, I have, and I will, is worth trusting.
1: Now, in this passage, we witness the strength of Israel's Redeemer and we hear the tender voice behind it, right? God confidently declares, I am your God, right? There's a personal nature to that. I mean, pause for a moment and let that sink in. I mean, in a world filled with many gods, in an Egyptian polytheistic context, God identifies himself distinctly as Yahweh. Well, there are countless faiths and paths that attempt to blend them and harmonize them, our journey starts with, I am Yahweh, the God who reached out, who wants to be known, who introduces himself as the universe creator. I mean, in the same breath, this God, our Yahweh, assures us that he hears our cries, our pain, our pleas. He's not a distant distant entity out there somewhere. He is actively listening. I mean, what a firm basis for a relationship of prayer. And beyond just hearing, I mean, we hear I am's promise that I will. It's not a suggestion. It's not a possibility. It's, it's a declaration of his intent to act on their behalf. Our faith stands firm on a God who not only identifies himself distinctly, but also attentively listens and commits himself to us. Now, I told you I'd get back to... The notion of listening prayer and childlike prayer and i want to do that with an exercise now as i was preparing for this sermon i picked another book off my shelf by donald miller called a praying life we did it a couple years ago as, as a men's bible study and and one of the um the exercises in it it's not an exercise it's, i'm making it into an exercise um but i i think that it, it highlights the importance of childlike prayer and childlike dependency. So I want you to open your Bibles, if they're not already open, shame on you. We've been in the Bible a long time this morning.
2: Um, I'm just kidding, Psalm 23. Let's go to Psalm 23 together. It's on page 392 of your pew Bibles, Psalm 23. Now, what I'm going to do is a little unconventional, but I'm going to read this passage, but I'm going to leave out all reference
1: to God and all reference to the acts of God. Right?
2: So let's, let's, let's do this together. I shall be in want, me, me, my soul, Me, the shadow of death, I will fear evil. Me, me, my enemies, my cup, me, my life. I mean, doesn't that just put it into perspective a little bit?
1: How when you take God out of this this context of, of childlike dependence, There is fear and death and self-centeredness, which if we put on our own shoulders, no wonder we grow distant. No wonder we feel desolation. No wonder it it grows doubts within us. And how do we get back to the place of childlike faith where we can take the place of a sheep and imagine God as our shepherd? Now, Now, one of the things I did when I was doing my counseling degree, is I thought a lot about attachment theory. And one of the things in attachment theory that they talk about is the relationship between your early attachments to your parents, those templates of relationships, and how they affect. They don't dictate, but they affect your later relationships to friends, to partners, and even to God. Um, I, I, a cold and distant relationship with a parent can become a cold and distant relationship with
2: God that has to be relearned because God is different than a cold and distant parent. Now if our task is to relearn a a childlike dependency where we can take the place of
1: a sheep, sometimes that means, means spending time in a particular type of prayer which imagines ourselves at the feet of a good father, right? I mean, that's, that's if, if we are the, God's children, he is a good father. Um, so I want you to imagine, and, and this is just for, just for a minute, I want you to imagine
2: yourself in this psalm. I invite your mind to wander, and this time I'm going to
1: reread it, but with God, present, God's person and God's actions present. So let me reread this. And and I invite you to consider what Scripture allows us to imagine ourselves as um, in relationship to this good Father.
2: The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me
1: in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell
2: in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, all of a sudden, our person is never alone.
1: The shepherd is always there. And our actions are never self-defined, but they're always in response, right? We're always being
2: led and guided. We're always walking with. There's a reason we fear no evil, for God's presence is with us. I mean, fostering a childlike
1: dialogue with God is a continual rediscovery. I mean, it's sometimes like learning a new language. I mean, it's, it's a call that we have to, to get to know a compassionate and caring father, I mean, who does not hesitate um, to, to bring himself into humanity when we had lost our way. We live in an age, I think, of constant distractions where there's always a reason not to pray. In fact, um, I was having a phone conversation with someone in this congregation about prayer and about praying now that I have a young child. Um, and, and their advice was to, to pray while nursing, or in my context, pray while bottle fe- feeding. Um, pray over the child. I mean, pray and recognize that God's hand is, is covering her. Um, I think that cultivating an awareness of God here and God now is is something that's worth taking time to do. Whether that's in the morning with your cup of coffee, whether that's a few minutes before you get started at work, recognizing that God is here, God is present. Um, I mean, God is working to to transform this context. Um, and I have a little plastic lawnmower that I'm pushing around to to try to do my best to participate in that work, we need to cultivate silence because it is not going to happen if we don't seek it. Um, I mean, the spiritual disciplines are not easily mastered. But throughout this journey, and, and this is one that Moses takes as well, the assuring voice of God is our beacon. He proclaims, I am. He proclaims, I've heard, I remember. And he proclaims, I will. I mean, these are the declarations that stand underneath our prayer. Why do we pray? Because
2: God hears, because God will. And I can speak for me personally. Um, there is
1: nothing that quite declutters my mind and helps me to see cl- clearly as, as the sort of listening prayer. Um, maybe that starts in scripture, but Maybe ends in um, a period of silence. And I would also remind us that this path um, is not a solitary one, right? I mean, we have the church. We have a community of believers around us that, that are going to help us along the way in, in rediscovering what it means to be God's children. Um, I mean, there's a transformative power to collective faith in this, where we g- kind of glean from the prayer lives of, of those around us. Um, so
2: understand, seeing the time and realizing I have too much to say, in
1: Exodus 6, we, we find powerful reassurances. Um, I mean, these are reassurances to, to Moses, but they're reassurances to God, God's people amidst struggle, amidst trials. I mean, both the cynic and the child have the same message this morning, that God says who says i am i have heard i remember also says i'm with you i will act in these ways i've made promises to you and our our challenge is to fully trust that to to embrace
2: that with a childlike spirit to hold on to his promises for redemption um We can also allow our minds to think
1: of Jesus, right? Jesus, the embodiment of childlike trust. Um, his teachings in life constantly displayed total reliance on God the Father. In moments of agony, I mean, his prayers reflected a deep surrender to God's will. Um, and through his sacrifice, Jesus bridged a, a chasm that, that that underlies and fulfills God's promise of redemption. He stands as a testament to unwavering faith and beckons us to, 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 to see God as the one who answers us in our doubts um, and embrace a God who promises and a God
2: who, who invites us to trust again. As I, as I pray for us,
1: I, I invite us all to see this image of, of childlike prayer um, and, and God's invitation to draw closer to him um,
2: because he is, he's the God who says, I am and I've heard and I will. Let's pray. God, you call us to an active faith where
1: we know you as our father. We, we see the heart of a shepherd leading us. Um, we embrace you because you, you are near and you are now. We trust you and, and your spirit's work among us. And, and I ask that you would help us to cultivate uh, a, an awareness and a closeness of you. Um, we all have Things standing in the way, whether that's kind of our past and our, our difficulty to cultivate relationships, um, or whether that's the, the stress of the present. Um But I ask that you would um you'd really help us to
2: become like children again um as we as we walk with you. In Christ's name, amen.